Last week and this week, we've kind of taken a step aside and uh, looking as we kind of anticipate this shift in the book of Acts, primarily toward the life and ministry of Paul. I want to give you a little bit of background on him. We said last week in Acts chapter 21 and 22, you don't have to turn there, um, but Paul identifies himself in three ways. He identifies himself as a citizen of Tarsus, he identifies himself as a Jew, and a Roman citizen. And so um, each of these identities plays a different, uh, an, an important role in helping us understand who Paul is. And our goal, just like last, not, or last, last week, our goal for tonight is to get some background and context on Paul and, because it's going to benefit us in two ways, in two, in two specific ways. One, it'll benefit us specifically in the book of Acts, right? We're going to get to watch his life unfold very soon. And so uh, we'll, we get to see all the more clearly, the more we understand uh, who Paul was, who he is, really, because he's, he's with Christ now. He's, he's alive forever with him, amen? And uh, so he, but as more we understand about him, the more we can understand the book of Acts, which is scripture. It's good for us to understand scripture better. And then, and then generally, we can, also, uh, be, we can also benefit us as we read through the epistles. We talked last week about how epistle means letter, Right? Paul wrote 13 of those letters in the New Testament, 27 books total. He wrote 13. That's a lot, right? So the more that we can understand the author, the more we can understand the content of the books that he wrote. So again, specifically in Acts, generally in Paul's epistles. So last week we talked about Paul of Tarsus. So now we go to part two, Paul the Jew. Part two, Paul the Jew. Paul referred to his Jewish heritage on several occasions. Uh, most of them occurred in a context when it, his Jewish background was beneficial, helpful to the argument that he was making, whether he was sharing the gospel or whether he was defending his ministry. Um, mo in most of those cases, it was where it was that, that part of his, his life was very beneficial to his argument. We see some, a couple of different texts here. We're not going to go through all these. Acts, uh, a couple places in Acts, uh, in, in Philippians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, and again, Philippi, uh, well, Philippians there is the most, I would say the most comprehensive argument, uh, the most comprehensive uh, statement on, on uh, his Jewish heritage. You may be familiar with that passage. It's Philippians chapter 3. And if you would, let's turn there. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Really, let's start at verse 1. Verse 1 will give us a little bit of context here. All right. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself could have, might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. That feels like a really weird place to stop, right? Because we know what's coming in verse 7, right? The things that I gained, I now count lost. But let's stop here for just a second. First of all, let's pray and then we'll continue, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. 
Lord, I thank you for how the best commentary on your word is your word. And Lord, as we look through this passage tonight, help us to get a better understanding of who Paul is. Lord, that we would understand your word better, that we would understand and be able to apply. Lord, not just to be, not just to be uh, intelligent people with lots of Bible knowledge walking around, but never applying it. Father, may we be doers of the word. And so, Lord, would you, we know that you're here, you're, all, you're in all places everywhere at all, all the time. But Lord, would, in a special way, would you work in our hearts tonight? Make us more like Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, a couple of things we want to talk about with, with Paul here. First of all, he says what? Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul only mentions his circumcision here in this letter. He was warning about Judaizers. Anybody know what Judaizers are? Exactly. That's right. We've been talking about that in our Sunday school class in Galatians. That's right. These are people that, that said, you know, this is great. Trust in Jesus. That's fantastic. And obey the law, right? Faith plus obedience. Faith plus works, right? Judaizers were those who insisted on, on uh, anyone within the, under their, in their ministry being circumcised and living under the Jewish law in order to be saved. And that's the key part, in order to be saved. Paul responded by saying that he was circumcised, but it had nothing to do with his salvation. Circumcision was an external mark, which set a person apart as being a Jew. It was a badge of membership, you might say, into being in, the, in the, a part of the covenant people of God. Thus, a Jewish boy would have been circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. And there were a couple of exceptions for this. Proselytes, we talked about proselytes last week, right? What's a proselyte? Anybody remember without looking at the notes? And everybody looks at their notes. A proselyte is somebody who converts to Judaism, right? Somebody who wasn't born in the Jewish family. It's someone who, who comes and, and joins in and says, I, I want to be a part of um, the, the nation of Israel. I want to be a part of the covenant people. So they, they're circumcised upon their conversion and they agree to obey the law. Okay? And then some, in some cases you have Jewish boys that came from mixed, uh, mixed families that were not circumcised at all. Example, Timothy. Timothy, uh, because his mother was a Jew, he was considered Jewish, but his, fa his father was Greek. And so that didn't happen for him until later in life. Um, so Paul, and I want you to see this, and this will be, a, this will be part of uh, the next major chunk of Acts going forward. Paul doesn't ask the Gentiles to be circumcised. They, obedience to the law is not required for salvation, right? In fact, he says that the true circumcision for the Christian is not a mark of the flesh, but it is spiritual dedication of the heart to God. And we see that there in Romans chapter 2. Religion is a human endeavor to reach God, right? Every religion in this world, apart from Christianity, is, 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 the, is the effort of man to reach God. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says that we could never reach high enough. And God in his mercy stooped down and came to us. How beautiful is that? How necessary is that? Religion is a human endeavor to reach God. Paul understood the only way is that is God reaching out to us in Christ. So, first of all, he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Second, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. You see that there in verse 5. All right? Of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. 
right? So first of all, who do you know of that was a part of the, part of the tribe of Benjamin? Well, Benjamin, obviously, right? Thus the name. Other notable people, such as the first king of Israel, Saul. Saul, the king, the first king of Israel, the one who was a head taller than the rest, right? He was a Benjaminite or a Benjamite, right? Uh, also, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. We've actually heard this guy's name recently, haven't we? Anybody remember who Gamaliel is? In Acts, let's see, I think it's chapter 5, uh, when the, the apostles are, are about to be beaten to death in the, in the midst of the Sanhedrin, this guy named Gamaliel says, hey, um, send, send the, these people out, and they do. And he says, men of Israel, I, let's remember history, shall we? Right? Remember this guy named Thutis? He rose up claiming to be somebody. Everybody was following him. And then what happened? He died and his followers scattered. Then he mentions another guy. And he says, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Because if, if, if what they're doing is from, is from human origin, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you may find yourself to be fighting against God himself. Pretty wise man, Right? File that away for a moment. We're going to hear his name again in a minute. But this guy, Gamaliel, was of the tribe of Benjamin. All right? Interestingly, too, uh, let's see if we can get down here. Uh, point, uh, guess two under two. Wow, that was good numbers, wasn't it? Man. Uh, after, the king, after the death of King Solomon, Israel was divided into two nations, right? The northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, right? Judah and Benjamin were the only two tribes that stayed uh, in, the, in, the, in the southern kingdom, which contained Jerusalem and all this kind of thing, called Judah, right? So then what happens? 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and they just completely ransack the entire northern kingdom. It's gone. It's not just that they're carried away, they're scattered everywhere. There, are, there is no northern kingdom anymore. It's gone, Okay. Then Babylon comes in 586, and they, they lay siege to Jerusalem, to Judah. Judah is carted off mostly to, to Babylon, but they're, they're allowed to return, right? Cyrus, I think, it's, I think it was Cyrus, the king of Persia, um, he, he allows Nehemiah and, and the rest um, to, to come back, to rebuild. And so, um, with that, then these two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, are the only ones that are allowed, that God, only ones that God allows to remain. Everybody else has, has, is not able, anyone that claims to be a Jew after that, the only clear lineage that remains is that of Benjamin and that of Judah. And even within that, because so much of the documentation, so many of the records were destroyed, it was very difficult to prove your lineage. And so he says, Paul says here, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, he can, what he's saying here is, I can, I can trace my line back. That's a huge deal. Not just for him, but for his family as well. Such an amazing uh, status symbol that would have been. All right. So, let's see. So he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. A Hebrew of Hebrews, see that there also in verse 5. If there was ever a true Jew, then Paul was one. This means he would have known the Hebrew language. He would have spoken it well. He also, we see this uh, number, of, a number of other things that point to that his heart still beats uh, for, for Israel, right? He still loves 
his Jewish heritage. Um, that he knew, his, he knew the Hebrew language. He kept the Jewish festivals. He, kept, he took Nazarite vows. Um, this is where he, uh, he refuses to cut his hair for a amount of time. These were, who was known for taking a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament? Anybody? Samson, that's right. So that was a, that was a mark of devotion. Right? So a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, he always preached that the gospel was for the Jew first and then for the Gentiles. Right? Why? Because that's the order in which it came. And um, we'll come back to this, but it also, um, you see, when Paul enters a city, where does he go first? So the, he goes to the synagogue. He goes to the, 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 because this would have been what? This would have been like fish in a barrel, right? This would have been the easiest uh, the, the most effective way to start evangelizing in a city. All right? And then also, and I, I included this, the, you also see that one of his greatest agonies in life is that his own kinsmen, his own brothers, according to the flesh, his own family, have rejected Jesus, who is the Messiah. Everything that, that the Jews were looking for was found in Jesus. And they watched him pass by. And they said, we're still looking. We still haven't found what we're looking for. So he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And then he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to the law, a Pharisee. We're going to camp out here for a little while. Um, we've, we've learned to use this really, this term, Pharisee, Pharisaical, or uh, that kind of thing, as, as really a negative term. Um, for someone who's legalistic, or for pretty much anything that we think is bad, right? There are some good things about the Pharisees. But they don't have Christ. And that's, that's, that's the drawing, that's the this dividing line there, right? There were, and I want you to, let's talk more about this. Who are these people? Let's look at their background. We believe the Pharisees came from a group called the Hasidim. The Hasidim. In the, in the time of the New Testament, the Jews had been ruled by the Persians, the Greeks, and finally the Romans. So during that period, this group called the Hasidim, the pious ones, their, this movement began. They emphasized a strict obedience to the Torah. And what's the Torah? Anybody? Right. Well, it's, it's, the, it's the first five, right? Yeah, it's the, it's the, the, the core, the core of, of, of their belief system, right? So they, they strict obedience to the Torah out of love for God. The word Pharisee itself means what? It means separateness. Separateness. Um, so they treasured being separate. And you think about that. That's a dominant theme in the Old Testament. God is calling out his covenant people to be separate from the, the world around them that worships uh, other gods, that is, that is polluting themselves and that is, is running away from him. He's calling, he says, come out from them, be separate. And so they take a name for themselves, meaning we want to be separate from this evil world unto the Lord. Okay, so, uh, so it means separateness. They treasured laws about being separate, purity laws. Sabbath laws, food laws, tithing laws. Again, from being uh, separate from all the other peoples unto the Lord. Some characteristics of Pharisees. A couple of things here. Um, let's see. First of all, they believed in living in harmony with one another. Uh, they wanted to live at peace with one another. Uh, it, it was a lay movement. It was not a professional movement. It was not something at the, the top of society. It was a grassroots kind of thing with no paid teachers. I think that's interesting. 
lay movement with no teachers, they lived simply. They were minimalist before minimalist was cool, right? These are the people that would have been living in tiny houses, right? Uh, this, that, that kind of thing. Real Simple Magazine. I mean, who knows? I don't know. Uh, they believed in life after death. They believed in angels and spiritual powers. You may think, well, whoop-de-doo. I mean, doesn't everybody? We're going to find out later that's not the case. Um, so they, uh, let's see, they, the, their scriptures include the Torah, uh, which is the Pentateuch, the law, uh, then the, the prophets and the writings. Now, so the prophets would have been all the major prophets, all the, mi- all the minor prophets. What were the writings? This would have been Psalms. Uh, this would have been Job. Job is considered uh, poetic or wisdom literature. This would have been the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So all the wisdom literature, right? All the Psalms and wisdom literature. And so that's the entire Old Testament, right? We see all that together. Um, So let's see, they believed in a doctrine of rewards and punishments in the afterlife. They had an emphasis on their own laws, which are not recorded in the Torah. This is where we... Uh, this is, you have to think about this is a theocracy here. This is, this is a situation where, uh, where civil law and religious purity laws is, are, are existing together. And so it's getting kind of murky here, right? They're trying to make the best of a, of a, of a kind of a demanding situation here. And so there's, there's bound to be error that comes in with that. Um, they had an emphasis on their own laws that are not recorded in the Torah. They believed in oral traditions, which Jesus spoke against, Right? He said, you, you nullify the word of God for your traditions. That's what he's talking about here. Oral traditions that Jesus spoke against several times on several different occasions. The oral law was not written down until 200 AD. Until after, until after the New Testament was written. I think that's interesting. Uh, and that was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah. All right. So those are some characteristics of the Pharisees. Let's talk about Pharisaic education. Pharisaic education. What did it mean to go to a Pharisaical school? All right. So for Paul to study the law, and again, that's the main emphasis right here. We're talking about how do you interpret the law? Um, He needed to go to Jerusalem. He couldn't stay in his hometown. What was his hometown? Tarsus. That's right. Couldn't stay in Tarsus. Had to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, It's possible that he went to Jerusalem as early as 14 or 15 years of age. Leaving his family and heading up to Jerusalem. You ever notice, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but like no matter where you came from to go to Jerusalem, you always went up to Jerusalem. We think of up being like north, right? But in, Jerusalem was on a mountain. So everywhere was up. Every, everything, everything going there was up. Um, so it's possible he went there around 14 or 15. This would have been the normal time for students to go. He actually had a, he had a nephew who lived in Jerusalem. Uh, we see that in Acts 23, 16. So two major uh, schools of interpretation for the law uh, when it came to the Pharisaic tradition. And you see those up there on the screen in your notes. What, first one is Shammai. Shammai was the, was the more conservative school. It was the stricter interpretation of the law. Very demanding, very, very intense. Uh, and then the second was the Hillel. The Hillel. It's a more moderate school. They, exercise, they emphasize flexibility tolerance. They were more open to Greek influence and they advocated for cooperation with the Romans. Isn't this interesting that Paul, who's like a Hebrew of the Hebrews, um, 
He has two choices here. Where do you think that he goes? He goes to Hillel. He's, in, he's engaged in Hillel. And, and not, just, not just under any teacher at Hillel either. Let's look at who his teacher was. His teacher was the, the most famous teacher of that generation, Gamaliel. This guy that we see in Acts 5, or that we see there in the, in the, in that the Lord uses uh, to, to spare his own, to spare his, his, his apostles, right? It's the same guy that, that is at the same time, think about that, at the same time had been, had been Paul's teacher. So we're seeing this connection here. So Paul stuttered under the famous teacher Gamaliel, part of the school of Hillel, and actually the grandson of the founder, Hillel himself. Um, under this, and I want you to see that the, the more that I read about this guy, Gamaliel, it, it emphasizes that he was gentle in nature. That he, was, that he, he preferred influence over authority. And so it's interesting that compared to the school of Shammai, which had been very demanding, very authoritarian in nature, Paul, coming from a very strict uh, Jewish background, ends up with this guy uh, who's going to um, kind of under, uh, I guess you could say under, not under right, but um, pull the rug out from under some of the things that his parents had probably emphasized. Because his parents, his parents as strict uh, diaspora Jews would have, would have not encouraged him to have friends, uh, to have friends that were, Jew, that were, um, that were Greek. It would have encouraged him to kind of stay in the Jewish quarter of town. Don't, don't venture outside, stay here. And so uh, Gamaliel is going to kind of push him uh, to remember the things that he, that he did learn about the world around him. And to be mindful of that. It's just, it's amazing how, when you think about his track, the track that God has him set on, the, it's no mistake that God has placed him here with this guy Gamaliel. Isn't that interesting? Like we talked about last week, God uses everything of your life for his glory. It's amazing. So, under, under the, fr- uh, the fragile, gentle Gamaliel, uh, contrast to the leaders of the rival school of Shammai, Paul learned to dissect a text until scores of possible meanings were disclosed according to the considered opinion of generations of rabbis. So he would have been able to look at the text and he would have had to know for, I mean, this is a guy who knew huge, huge chunks of the Old Testament. That he would know how to interpret it multiple, multiple different ways according to the history of interpretation of that, of that passage. This guy knew the law and he was sharp too. And so when you start thinking about the, the, the work that his education put him through, it makes sense then that he says that he was advancing beyond many of, many of his contemporaries, right? So, um, Gamaliel was also the most outstanding teacher of his generation, greatly respected, a member of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin means the 70, it's the, it's the, the rulers, the, the religious rulers of, of, uh, of, the, of the Jewish people. Um, however, I want you to see this, with all the influence that he has, he's part of the minority in the Sanhedrin. There are other groups that are larger than, than, the, than the Pharisees. So I think it's interesting just looking back at, at back in Acts where you see Gamaliel step up and everyone listens. These two groups were not friends. And yet everyone listened to this man. Interesting. Interesting. See, it's amazing to see how God works this all out. And so again, just like I said, he's known, he, Gamaliel is known best in the New Testament for his advice to the Sanhedrin when the apostles 
were hauled before them and then, uh, for having preached in the name of Jesus, Acts 5. The majority wanted to condemn the apostles to death, but he spoke against it, right? They beat them, sent them out, and what happens? The apostles left the Sanhedrin, what? Rejoicing, because they had been, they had been, covered, suffer, been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for the name of Jesus. All right, so we talked about um, Pharisaical education. Let's talk about methods of interpretation. This, this feels a little dry, I got you, but the more that we look at these things, the more that Acts is going to leap off the page to us. All right, so let's, let's dig in. Pharisaic methods of interpretation. Paul's letters reflected his learning from the Pharisaic school. Sometimes he used the, this Jewish midrash, midrashic uh, methods in his teaching. What does midrash mean? Midrash means uh, a commentary. It's a commentary on the Old Testament. And so it was, it, this was a, a common uh, thing in use for, um, um, it's a com- it was a common thing in use for uh, Pharisaic education, the Midrash. So Midrashic. Um, so first, look, we, we can look at places like Romans 11. Uh, we won't go there, but basically Paul uses an argument from what is lesser to what is greater. Uh, so basically, if the lesser thing is true, then how much more will also this greater thing be true? That's a Pharisaic uh, tradition. That's a Pharisaic way of interpreting uh, and way of argumentation. Um, Jesus also used this in, in, in Luke chapter 11. Um, all right, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Uh, in this passage, Paul speaks of the veil. This is that really confusing passage about, uh, about how when Moses came down the mountain, he had the veil over his face. We talk about the, the former glory and the latter glory. Um, so, Paul, this is actually, this is also the, this, this tactic or this, this way of, of explanation he would have learned from Gamaliel. I think that's really cool. Um, so Moses' face shone because he had witnessed the Shekinah glory of God. So Israel could not look upon his face. When he went to his tent, he would remove the veil when he spoke to the Lord by himself. Uh, then, so he explains and then he applies and teaches with it. Paul then applies the lesson. Christians can remove the veil, which is interpreted as blindness toward God by trusting in Christ. Verse 17. Then we approach God through the Spirit. Our veil is removed. We are, and our eyes are uncovered, and we have direct direct access to the full glory of God. Basically, what he's saying is what you have in Christ is better. Sounds like Hebrews, doesn't it? Amen. What we have in Christ is better. And it's better than anything. Even better than Moses speaking to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Paul says, you've got something better. You get, the, you get access to the full glory of God through Jesus Christ. That's good. All right, so we talked about that. And so um, I wanted, I felt like this was important. This was not a group that would have had a lot of influence on Paul, but let's talk about the Sadducees. So he says, in reference to the law, I was a, I'm a Pharisee. What he's also saying is I'm not a Sadducee, right? You ever hear the old song? I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so Sadducee. I don't want to be a Sadducee. I just want to be a sheep. Bah, 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 bah. All right, anyway, so, yeah. As to the law, not a Sadducee. You're never going to forget that now. That's part of your, your noetic structure in your mind. It's, it's always going to be there now. Yep. All righty. So, 
Uh, ten characteristics of the Sadducees, all right? First, they were largely upper class people. Largely upper class. Largely in the high priest circles. When you hear about who the, who the high priest is, pretty much at any given point in time, um, chances are during this era, it's gonna be a Sadducee, all right? They're in the high, high priestly circles. Um, you think, and when you compare that to the Pharisees, this was a, a grassroots movement, right? No paid teachers. Sadducees were all about getting paid for what they were teaching, right? Interesting. The policy, their policy in respect to Roman occupation of Israel, because again, who was ruling at this point? Rome. Rome was in charge of everything. And the beautiful thing that, that was happening at this point is they, that for, during this time when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, Rome was, was letting the Jews kind of do their own religious thing as long as they paid taxes, right? So, um, so and, and the Sadducees, what was their response to the Roman occupation? Go along with it as much as possible. Cooperate. And, and the good thing about that would be what? If, you, if you're favorable to Rome, then hopefully Rome will be favorable to you. That's right. That was the thing. Um, they wanted to cooperate as much as possible. Um, they did not believe in, look at this, they didn't believe in the, in the resurrection. None. No life after death. No divine rewards. No divine punishment. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in demons. They and, and, and here's the thing. They were the majority of the Sanhedrin. They were a secularizing force in Israel. They believed that everything that happened was a result of, free, of a mixture of free will and fate. Which I don't know how that works out. Free will plus fate. Maybe it's just, maybe it just shows kind of the, the, the mental gymnastics they're having to go through to justify their, 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 their state. Um, they accepted the Pentateuch, the Torah, as the only scriptures. Right? Just the first five. That's it. Everything else, that's not, that's not the Bible. Okay? They didn't accept the, the prophets or the writings of scripture. They did not accept the oral traditions of the Pharisees, which that was probably a, a redeeming feature, right? Right? So we can't categorically dismiss them. There are some good things there. But also, and last thing, from the beginning, they were the main enemies of Christ and Christians. They feared, and here's, here's where that Roman occupation, cooperation kind of thing comes back in. They feared that Christians might develop into a popular messianic uprising against the Roman government and bring about some sort of reprisal, right? So, um, <clears throat> and so it, was, it was by no accident that when Saul goes to seek approval to kill Christians and have them hauled off to jail, who does he go to? The high priest, who would have been a Sadducee. He knew exactly who to go to. He knew exactly how to go to. All right? For wanting to persecute Christians. So, in closing, we've been going through the first six verses here, right? We've seen um, all these things. Um, we can, let's review. There's the beginning of the passage. Um, Again, Paul says, 
verse 1. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the, in the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, which we've already seen unfold, and then as to righteousness, which is in the law, blameless, found blameless. He could fool everyone. He knew the game. He knew all the oral traditions. He knew all the, everything with the Mishnah. He knew everything that he needed to do to be in right standing to, so that his clear path to being a part of the Sanhedrin, being one of the rulers of the people was going to be intact. And then on the road to Damascus, the Lord saved Saul. And then everything that he had been yearning for, everything he had been fighting for, everything he had been living every second of his life yearning for. What does he say in verse 7? Philippians 3 verse 7, he says, Whatever things were a gain to me, those things I counted as loss. Loss compared or for the sake of of Christ. And I want you to see this here. Paul isn't saying that everything that happened before is worthless and I can't ever draw from it ever again. I can't ever use any skill that I ever learned. I need to step away from all that altogether. No, that's not what he's saying. It doesn't mean that all things are worthless. As we've already seen, all things are valuable in the hands of the Lord. The Lord is, he, he works every second of our life for his glory. The, but the thing is, those things need to be in a proper place with regard to the advancement of the gospel. The gospel now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is number one. It's the priority. And everything else needs to fall in line toward that end. So it's not that everything else is worthless, but it's worth far, far less compared to the, the, the overwhelming beauty of knowing Jesus Christ. The greatness of knowing Christ and being found in him. And so two application questions I want to leave you with tonight. First of all, what gains in your life still need to be counted as loss for the sake of Christ? Is there something that you're clinging to? Something, even something good that may have happened in the past, may have happened today. Is there something that you feel that you're clinging to as if it's a, a good gain in your life at the expense of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the expense of knowing Christ. Are you wearing something like a badge of honor when instead you need to be proclaiming and holding Christ out for the world to see? So, that's question number one. Secondly, what opportunities and bridges for the gospel through your life are you neglecting? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. There are two things that, that, will, that will endure for eternity. 
the Lord and, and his extension of, him, of himself is his word. So that's one thing. And the souls of men. Are we investing our lives for eternity? And that doesn't mean that we're, that, we're, that we're constantly looking to the ends of the earth. Doesn't mean that we're constantly looking to foreign missions. And trust me, <laughs> I love foreign missions. You, you'll, you, you, it'll be hard for you to find somebody that's more, that's more out there wanting, wanting to, to press our church toward foreign missions than me. However, however, what are we doing right here? Airplanes don't make missionaries. What was the Spurgeon quote? The light that shines the farthest shines brightest at home. You think about standing in front of a lighthouse. If you were to stand up there on that, on that railing around where the light's shining, that light that shines miles and miles out into the ocean, what is it like to stand right in front of it? It's like standing in front of the sun, isn't it? When people in your life, in your sphere of influence, stand near you, when they're around you in your daily life, do they see Christ blazing like the sun through your one life? He's worthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for how you use our lives for your glory. And to think our, our lives, well, apart from you, they're worth nothing. Lord, thank you that by your grace that you take all these details that you're working generations before we're even born and using everything about us, everything about human history, you're orchestrating all of it for your glory and for our good. Lord, thank you. And so, Father, would we not cling to anything else but Jesus? Father, may, may everything that you've given us, all the material possessions you've given us, all the experience, all the gifts, all the talents, the training that you've given us, Father, may they be tools for the advancement of the gospel. And Father, may they have their right place with regard to the advancement of the gospel. And Father, would you open our eyes that we would behold people around us in our daily life that need to hear the gospel. Christians that need to be encouraged and, and built up. Father, would you open our eyes to opportunities for us to be trained and invested in so that we can be better witnesses for you. That we can apply your word more faithfully. Lord, that our desire, that, that what people see from us is not look at who we are, but look at who Jesus Christ is. And not just that people would flood the doors of this building, although, you, Lord, you know my heart and you know that I, I want them to. But Father, as we scatter out from this place tonight, as we go throughout the world, may it be that we, it's not that just that we're coming to church, but that as, as we leave, we are the church. That we're being the church, that we're doing the work of the church in daily life, proclaiming the gospel. Lord, we love you and would you have your way in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.